And hello to you and welcome to the Richard Nichols podcast, the personal development podcast series that's here to help inspire, educate and motivate you to be the best you can be. I'm psychotherapist Richard Nichols and this is episode 162. It's titled Don't Let Your Career Define You. And if you're ready, we'll start the show. So, quick question for you listeners. Imagine you're invited to a friend's house for a party and you find yourself chatting to a total stranger. If they were to say to you, so what do you do? What's the first thing that pops into your mind? Go on, what do you do? Do you swim? Do you play cricket? Do you party? What do you do? Because that's what they're asking, isn't it? What sort of things do you do? Or are they? Do they actually mean, what do you do for a living? What's your job? Of course it is. Now, I know that it's just small talk, chit-chat, something to say just to get the conversation going, but the fact that, apart from the weather, what someone does for a living is the first place people tend to go. I think it's worth questioning it, to be honest. Because there's more to us than our job. It shouldn't define who we are. At least, it shouldn't be the only thing that defines us. But in our culture, we do seem to overly value a career and use it to describe ourselves. And this even starts before kids get to school. If someone doesn't really know how to talk to children, they sort of run out of things to say. Within a minute or two, we're on to that peculiar question of, what do you want to be when you grow up? Hmm. What do you want to be... How serious is that for a four-year-old? It's pretty deep, really. Always makes me think of a Charlie Brown cartoon strip from the 1960s where Charlie Brown says to Linus, Do you ever think much about the future, Linus? And he says, Oh yes, all the time. What do you think you'd like to be when you grow up? Charlie asks. And Linus replies, Outrageously happy. And I wish that was the default answer, rather than, Uh, an astronaut. I mean, sure, someone's got to be an astronaut, and it's probably going to be one of the kids that said it when they were four. But why do we create an expectation at such a young age that a job is so important? This attitude has been going on for a very long time. To Well, I'm assuming it is. We, can, we, we even see um, our job titles in people's names. We know that before the Norman Conquest of 1066, the Brits didn't tend to have surnames. At least, we didn't have hereditary surnames. We didn't pass our names on to our children. We just had our first name and maybe a nickname based on some sort of recognisable characteristic because obviously if a village had too many Johns in it we need a John the Smith and a John the Short. But there's a reason why there are more people in the world called Smith than there are Short. I'm sure there were plenty of Shorts, Talls and Fairheads but the jobs seemed more important and that's why we have so many Tailors, Wrights, Coopers and Clarks, which sound like a collection of either solicitors or estate agents. Probably are somewhere. Because even hundreds of years ago, our jobs defined who we were. But is that fair? I really don't think it is, because jobs aren't as important as they used to be. Society's changed a heck of a lot. Yeah, we still have farmers that produce food, but a lot of that work is done with machinery. 
so they can produce so much more than they would have done even a couple of hundred years ago. So we need a different delivery system, a different way of selling that food, and that makes dozens of different jobs. Even a supermarket needs someone who is good at working with data, figures, numbers, Excel spreadsheets to work out trends in the business so that they know which adverts are working better than others. That job's called a marketing analyst or a reporting consultant. And without that role in a company, they'd be flushing their money down the toilet and our food would be twice the price. Any job is valuable to society. Not just wheelie bin collectors and sewage workers, because believe me, if every job disappeared, they would be the ones you'd miss the most. That reminds me. A couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, yeah, about two years ago maybe, I forgot to put my bin out the night before. You know, they usually get emptied at about seven o'clock in the morning, but I forgot the night before. And so I'm just chilling in the morning, drinking coffee or whatever, and I hear this lorry outside. And I'm, I'm up and off quicker than a wig in the wind. I drag the bin to the top of the drive and a guy comes over to fetch it and I say something like, ah, oh, almost missed you. And this guy just stares at me for a second or two, blinking with a kind of slightly startled expression on his face. And then he says, it's Richard, isn't it? And I wasn't big-headed enough in those days uh, to think that it might be a fan of the podcast. So I'm grappling in my head to try and figure out if this is an old client or something. And he sees in my face I must be struggling a bit. And he reminds me that many years ago, we used to work in the same company. I was a part-time therapist in those days and also had a a proper job at the same time. Part-time, but a real job. And instantly I remembered him as you do. And then he started to look embarrassed and made comments about how working on the bins was just supposed to be temporary. He was made redundant and had to take any job he could. All this stuff that was kind of putting himself down quite a bit because he was clearly embarrassed about his job, despite the fact that it's probably one of the most important jobs in the country. He's contributing to making my life considerably more comfortable. But to him, it defined him as a failure. Massively unfair. I'm a little envious of people in those sorts of jobs sometimes, maybe not in the rain, but the getting out into the world, the camaraderie and banter you get from that sort of work with your workmates. My job's really serious, as you'd expect. People don't come to therapy just for the sake of it. And when they don't need you any longer, they're gone. That's it. They don't don't even talk to you anymore, of course. Yet this guy is acting as if he's got something to be ashamed about. How unfair. He wouldn't think that way about anybody else. But you can get away with slagging yourself off, can't you? Because no one else is listening to that internal dialogue. It's only when we vocalise it to someone else that it probably makes us go, ooh, hang on a minute. And if we can catch ourselves, if we have that internal dialogue that says, you're irrelevant because your job is irrelevant, then you need to take a a step back and recognise that you are not your job. Or at least, you are more than just a job. And that's especially important for somebody who's unemployed. With my old colleague, maybe he was embarrassed because he knew why I'd left that part-time job. Because my therapy work was taking up a lot of time. I was becoming a successful, self-employed man. And I reminded him of success. So if he saw himself as a failure, then that comparison dragged him down. So we're back to the old chestnut of keeping up with the Joneses, aren't we? A question that I asked in my book... 15 Minutes to Happiness, folks, available in all good bookshops, go buy it, is this. Imagining that there is no change to the economy 
or the price of goods, which of these two scenarios would you prefer? Number one, you and everyone else in the country gets a £10,000 pay rise. Or two, you get a £15,000 pay rise, but everyone else gets a £30,000 raise. Whenever I ask people this, you can see it torture them. On one hand, option two gives them an extra £5,000 per year, but it also puts them on a lower salary than maybe everybody else that they know. And it's this sort of weird thinking that helps us to see where our priorities are and whether they create further problems down the line, because it's really important to develop a sense of self-worth that does not depend on your career. If your job becomes too tightly entwined with your sense of self-worth, then it can be out of your control. It's why that guy from the film The Full Monty, do you remember that? Couldn't admit to his wife he'd been made redundant, and she only found out when the bailiffs turned up. His inner critic was telling him that he was an absolute failure for being made redundant because his sense of self-worth was so entangled in his job, it was the only place that he could see pride. In order to build up and maintain a decent sense of self-worth, it's important to understand how you view yourself. We all have an inner critic in our head that looks at the worst version of us. That's quite normal, but it shouldn't be constant. If your inner critic is constantly putting you down, then you need ways to override it. First of all, it's okay to have an inner critic. We'd probably struggle to be decent people without it. It is normal. There are many parts to our personality. A part that wants to eat crisps and binge-watch crap on the telly, and a part that wants to be fit and dynamic and energised. What I like to do is think about the notion that these different versions of me are all sitting in a circle, like an AA meeting, you know. And there's one particularly loud character, there's one that dominates, and maybe that's the inner critic. The one that says, you're rubbish, you'll never be a success in life, you're crap, you've got no reason to be proud of anything. And then there's another one that thinks the exact opposite, but just isn't as dominant in the meeting, doesn't speak up much, if at all. So let them. Let the inner critic finish what they're spewing out, and think about the inner advocate standing up and now in order for this to be realistic here so that it's not just mumbo jumbo this inner advocate acknowledges the critic doesn't doesn't override the fact that if you think of yourself as a failure you can't ignore that so this this inner advocate says things like i can see why you'd think that way it makes sense why you'd assume that there's no reason to be proud but i think it's unfair to overlook all the things that we do well You know, imagine whatever is appropriate. Eventually, the inner advocate gets stronger and dominates the meeting and the critic can sit quietly mumbling to themselves and no one's really listening. I know it sounds daft, but the brain is a bit daft, so play it at its own game. You are more than your job, but you are also more than your thoughts. Your thoughts are not your reality and anyone that's ever seen a CBT therapist will have constantly heard that because it's so easy to forget. It's really easy to forget that your thoughts are just your thoughts, not actually real life. So if you find that a part of you is being cruel and belittling, stop for a moment and ask yourself this. Would I speak to someone else this way? Is this fair? What would someone else say about me? And doing that can wake up a part of you that can think more logically rather than emotionally 
and allow you to look at evidence that will deny those criticisms easier rather than confirm them. Because we exaggerate, don't we, as humans? We exaggerate and think in absolutes. Thinking in absolutes is when my wife says things like, you never close that kitchen drawer properly. And I think, what, really, never? Or is it that you just don't notice when I do because it's unnoticeable, and so you only notice when I don't? Now, be aware that I say, I think that, not I say that. Fifteen years of marriage, I've learned the hard way not to say everything that I think. So that's an absolute. And if you find yourself thinking, I never do anything right, make sure you recognise what you've done there and replace it with a more balanced phrase, such as, sometimes I do things well and sometimes I don't. Each time you find yourself thinking an exaggeratingly negative thought, respond with a more realistic phrase and you'll begin to build some self-worth. Right, pod fans, let's crack on with our day then, shall we? If you use social media, feel free to follow me. I'm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just search Richard Nichols and my cheesy face will pop up somewhere. Oh, that reminds me. I was interviewed on someone else's podcast last week, a lady called Mimi Bouchard. You might know of her from Made in Chelsea. She has a a podcast out called the Mimi B Podcast. She's got quite a a big Instagram following, so that's what reminded me. And the episode that she recorded with me is probably out next week, I think, and it's well worth a listen. We were talking about anxiety, but you know me, I I go off on lots of tangents, and we've we've probably talked about a lot of things that would be very relevant to you, dear listener. We even did a bit of... um, hypnosis on it a little bit of hypnotherapy so you'll get a nice little chill out motivational session as well if you listen to that so do look out for that mimi bouchard lovely lady in the meantime enjoy yourself take care of yourself and i'll see you next time bye